You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Yep. Wow. Wow. I like it. I like it. The rest of us. Let's learn a thing or two, right? It's good to see you guys. Really, really, really glad to be with you. If you're a guest, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's my joy, as always, to get to be with you uh, this morning as we open up God's Word together to be more molded and made into the image of Jesus, especially as we journey uh, in another installment of our latest series for the fall, For Our Good Always. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, for the first several weeks of this series, we've basically been having some bigger picture conversations about God and and morality. Uh, This series is going to talk about the Ten Commandments, but for these first couple of weeks, what we've been doing is sort of looking at the Ten Commandments and all of God's instructions more as a group, taking something of a a 30,000-foot view of them before diving down into the specifics. Now, next week, we're going to start getting into the commandments individually, but before we do that, there was one other conversation that we felt like we needed to have before we get too far into things, something that we felt was pretty pertinent for us to talk about. About as we're kind of taking this journey together on morality. Uh, and that conversation goes a little something like this. It's all about why you might not be a Christian in 10 years. Welcome to church. This is where we're going. All right. Uh, so maybe that sounds a little oversold to you, uh, maybe slightly fear-mongering to a certain extent. And I get that. All right. Totally. Uh, but let me see if I can un- unpack for you a little bit of what I mean. So uh, if you are at all plugged into evangelical Christian culture, uh, you are probably aware of the ongoing and growing list of formerly high-profile Christians who have recently left the faith, who have recently decided they are no longer Christians. It typically gets uh, sort of put into this umbrella term or coined uh, as popularly as like deconstruction or that, that sort of thing. And the story generally goes something like this, that Christian celebrity A has some sort of experience, uh, whether that be a hardship uh, or a, a critique that has caused them some sort of distress or a moral failure, maybe their own or one that they've witnessed and people they look up to or the church at large. And it often leads them to this place of sincere struggle and questioning. Now, to be clear, that is not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing to wrestle with seasons of doubt. In fact, I would argue that you need to wrestle with seasons of doubt if you're going to be a healthy and mature believer on the other end. That is not a bad thing at all. But somewhere in the process, as they as they are processing their experience, somehow, some way, they get to the place where they conclude that the Bible and its God are wrong, and they can no longer call themselves believers in Jesus. Uh, a recent famous example of this, and one that honestly hits a little bit close to home for me, is a, a guy by the name of Joshua Harris. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with him, uh, for folks in my generation who kind of came up in Christianity when I did, he was kind of a big deal. Uh, He got popular or he got famous at way too young of an age after writing a book on purity and dating called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, And it just hit the evangelical world by storm. It was massively successful and massively influential. Uh, In hindsight, 
it had some pretty big issues, to be quite honest, and a 21-year-old should never have attempted to write a definitive book on dating, but nonetheless, it was massively influential in the evangelical world, and Harris went on to become a lead pastor of a well-respected Reformed megachurch. Until 2019, when after a series of scandals led him to decide that he needed to leave the pastorate and leave his church, he also uh, announced that he was getting a divorce from his wife and that he no longer considered himself a Christian. Uh, And in his announcement, that was really surprising, especially to people who had followed him for a while like me, uh, he framed his deconversion from Christianity in Christian language. He framed it in the language of repentance. And he said that he was essentially repenting of being a Christian. And he apologized how his writing and speaking about God's design and restrictions on sexual behavior had led to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. Essentially, the faith and the God that he once found so beautiful and so compelling now, in his mind, had become something that was dangerous and damaging and destructive. And the truth is, is I wish that I could say that Harris' story was like an anomaly, that it was just like one story out there that wasn't very typical. But honestly, from my seat on the bus as a pastor, my experience tells me otherwise, that Harris and others like him are just popular examples of a trend that I see happening all the time, often with very regular, ordinary people like you and like me, people that I love dearly all the time. And today, what I want to do is I want to give us some eyes to see some of what contributes to these things, some of what contributes to these stories, in the hope that it helps these stories not become your story. That's my goal. And so we're going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. That's where we're going to kind of base everything out of. And I'm going to give us a baseline to understand what the Bible says about those who appear to fall away. And then I'm going to connect some dots to a lot of the things that we've already talked about in previous weeks of this series. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn there or flip it open to your phone, you can do that. Uh, As you do that, I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory, okay? So, uh, We talked a few weeks ago about how the Ten Commandments are actually part of a much larger story. The Ten Commandments are a part of a salvation story, that God miraculously rescues his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. He brings them out, he makes them his people, and he promises to bring them to a land of their own where they can flourish as humanity was always meant to flourish. And as a part of that, at Mount Sinai, he gives them his commandments for flourishing in his promised land. These laws would be how they would learn to live as the freed sons and daughters of God and not slaves to an oppressive regime. Human beings living in right relationship with each other and right relationship with the God who made them. Beings of dignity and worth, not creatures of debasement and burden. But if you know how the story goes, long story short, Not everyone who started at the mountain makes it to the promised land. And Hebrews 3 explains to us why. We're going to pick up in verse 7. This is what the author writes. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here he quotes some from the Old Testament, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
All right, so there's a lot going on here. In verses 7 through 11, the author is quoting some Old Testament passages about Israel's journey from slavery through the wilderness and into the promised land. And for the record, it was not a smooth trip, okay? It was not a smooth trip at all. From the very beginning, there were serious issues. Literally, while Moses himself is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people get tired of waiting and they fashion an idol or a replacement image for God for themselves to worship. And based on the Hebrew words used to describe the event, we have every reason to believe that their actions were quite TVMA, to put it very lightly. And it doesn't get better from there. Throughout the journey, the people almost constantly complain and question God. They rebel against Moses' leadership, uh, and they start to think that God has just brought them out in the wilderness to die. And even when they get right up to the edge of the promised land, right before they're able to go in itself, they send some of their guys forward to spy it out. And when they come back and they tell the people how good it is, but some of the issues that are there, like there are people already living there and all of that, even then, when they come back, they still question whether or not God is for their good and will actually deliver the land into their hands, and they wind up refusing to go in. So just consider this backdrop for a moment, okay? For the Israelites, they had just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. What I mean, what a transformative and mountaintop experience, right? Like imagine you are in their shoes when this happened happens. There's the certainty and this belief that we are headed someplace good, that God is who he says he is, that his ways are good, that he is for our good. For many of us who became Christians early in life, you can perhaps remember the same feeling, right? Convinced of this truth of the gospel, confident in God, and that he knew what was for our good. In some respects, and I don't mean for this to sound demeaning by any stretch, there was some blessed naivety in that, right? What I mean is, said a bit differently, is that for some of us, life and discipleship to Jesus hadn't quite kicked us in the teeth yet. You know what I'm saying? And the same was true for the Israelites here. But they get out from Egypt and into the wilderness between slavery and the promised land, and then it's not at all what they expected. It's much harder than they thought it was going to be. They're nomads, essentially living as a nation of caravanning people. Imagine being on a cross-country road trip with your extended family nonstop for 40 years. That is not a luxury vacation, am I right? You know, that's not the way you want to spend your time. They aren't getting to the promised land as fast as they expected. They're tired. They're hungry. They're beginning to wonder all kinds of things about God. They start to grumble and complain, and their disposition starts to harden towards this God who just delivered them from an oppressive regime. They begin saying things to Moses like, have you and Yahweh just let us out here to starve? You spoke of deliverance, but back in Egypt, at least we had bread and meat. They're afraid. The people in the land are bigger than us. They're going to kill us. They're easily going to overpower us. Deuteronomy 2.27 tells us that they even concluded that God didn't bring us up out of Egypt because he loves us. He did it because he hates us. He didn't rescue us from slavery because he cares about us. He actually hates us and wants to destroy us. And you can hear the subtle messages in their complaints, right? Like, mm, maybe this was the wrong move. This doesn't feel right or good to me. Maybe we got this Yahweh thing wrong. Maybe Yahweh's way isn't the right way. Maybe God is actually wrong on some pretty important things. Maybe God isn't for our good after all. Maybe he actually wants to make us miserable. Maybe he actually wants to destroy us. 
And all of this essentially provokes God to essentially say, okay, hey, listen, if you're not going to trust me, then you can't go where I want to take you. If you're not going to trust me, you can't go where I want to take you, where I want to bring you. And so here's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's drawing a direct line between what many in Israel did in the wilderness to those who would fall away from the faith presently. He says to his audience, even though you are in a different environment and different circumstances, you still face the same danger that the Israelites faced in the wilderness. The central metaphor here for falling away is hardening, and you see it in the next few verses. Look at verse 13. He says, but exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Essentially, this metaphor of hardening or falling away, it paints the picture of a person's heart who was once open and warm and trusting of God that has now become closed, cold, and distrustful, hard to reach or reason with. But the interesting thing about this passage is that it claims that this hardening is both something that we do and something that happens to us. It's both something we do and something that happens to us. The refrain of the passage, do not harden your hearts, implies that we have some agency in it, right? That there's some way in which we, some ways in which we participate in it, an active process to a degree. But it also says that we should encourage each other every day so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Point being, when you are being affected by something deceitful, you don't always know that it's happening, right? You are being deceived. And I believe this is the reason so much caution is given here because hardening is both something that we have agency over and it is something that can happen to us gradually over time and we're not even aware that it's happening we don't even see that it's taking place. And the warning here feels like, hey, listen, this might be happening to you right now. This might be happening to you right now. So encourage each other, protect each other from from it because there are things going on around you that you can't see that might be leading you to one day fall away from the God who rescued you and saved you from sin and slavery and death. And this is where the rubber really meets the road on all we've been talking about thus far in our series, because most of the people I know who have experienced something like this wouldn't say that it was something that they went into trying to make happen. Very few of them would say, like, you know what? I went into it trying to not believe in God, trying to not trust in Jesus, trying to not be a Christian anymore. No, most of them were just genuinely struggling with their very real experiences and trying to make sense out of their faith. And something just happened along the way, something that they may not even be able to put words on. And from my seat on the bus, much of that was due to the fact that there were some things going on things that they weren't even aware of, things that I don't think hardly anyone is aware of happening around them that deceived them, things that directly connect to what we've talked about thus far in our series. I'll show you what I mean. So 
Last week, we introduced the biblical concept of conscience. You may remember this. We, how everyone has a conscience and how it's affected by sin and culture. We argued that many base their sense of right and wrong on different receptors, right? Like five categories of taste buds. And if you missed it, you're going to need to catch up. But as a recap, those moral taste buds are care, harm, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And we talked about how, biblically speaking, God's moral vision includes all five of these categories. Now, all cultures have different sensitivities, but as a general truism, our culture seems to be very sensitive to things that activate the care, harm, and fairness foundations. We have a little framework for loyalty and authority, but over on the far other side, we have virtually no category for things like sanctity. Like it's a lost language on us that something could be wrong simply because it violates something sacred. Like that sounds like a foreign language to us even when we say it. For us, it essentially has to have a victim that it hurts. This is why we may intuitively sense that things like cannibalism are wrong, but we don't quite have the language to say why it's wrong. Now, just to be clear, the Care Harm Foundation is a very good, very biblical, and very necessary foundation that is seen all over Scripture. It's seen in things like don't kill, don't steal, don't steal, treat others as you would want to be treated. But if it is the only functional category you have and isn't in some way balanced with the other things that God cares about, this can be very problematic. This is probably easier to see for you in ways that other groups do this that you probably don't. So let me give you some examples. So if a person were to base their sense of morality almost solely on the foundation of sanctity, that things are wrong because some God figure says they are wrong, therefore they are evil and vile and degrading to the very earth, what that person might wind up becoming hypothetically is an extreme Islamic terrorist, right? that believes that their actions are ridding the earth of the moral filth that Westerners have brought in with it with our rampant sexualization of everything and anything goes morals. They are exclusively operating inside the sanctity category as though that is all, that it is all that matters. And in so doing, oftentimes they do great harm to others. But when, when sanctity is your primary lens without care or harm too, it's easy to think that your actions are virtuous and righteous. And we can see that super clearly, right? We can see it super clearly and say, hey, yeah, you know what? That's actually off. I'll give you another one. If a person were to build their sense of morality solely on the foundation of group loyalty, that's not a bad foundation by any stretch, right? Humans have needed to build cohesive groups to survive and deal with threats. But if one were to go overboard with that, do you know what might happen? He or she might wind up here. A passion for patriotism might progress to an idolatrous devotion to a political figure and might even progress to white nationalism and racism for some and land you in jail. Now, that I've stepped on enough toes, my assumption would be that most of you see both of these examples very clearly and you're like, yep, I get it, all right? I, I definitely see the problem with moral pigeonholing everything into one category. It can be dis disastrous and lead to extremely unchristian places. But here's the thing. The same is true when care harm is your only lens to. The same is true 
when care harm is your only lens to. If you only care about sanctity, you might become a terrorist. If you only care about loyalty, you might become an insurrectionist or a racist. And if you only care about care harm, you very well may end up labeling God as the villain. You very well may end up labeling God as the bad guy. I'll give you an example. I'm going to put this all the way on the bottom shelf with the most blatant that I could find, and then we'll work, uh, work into more of our experience. So Nadia Boltz Weber uh, is a woman who started a church in Denver that she led for 10 years before becoming what she, call, what she calls a public theologian. And I name her specifically not to like just drag her mess out into the street or anything like that, but because she has a platform with many Christians who are questioning their faith. And I think it's important that you see her reasoning. She is someone who has definitely labeled the God of scriptures as a bad guy, like she is not even in the vicinity of biblical Christianity. And by that, I mean that she does not believe that Jesus necessarily physically existed, which is essential for Christianity. And she does not believe that he was literally raised from the dead, again, essential for Christianity. But the logic in this quote of hers is as straightforward as it gets. Check this out. She says, if the teachings of the church are harming people, which of course she thinks they are, then we need to rethink those teachings. In other words, care harm is literally the only category I have for morality. And if the God of scripture demands limitations on behavior that people perceive as harm, then God is the bad guy. And we either need to reject him or we need to redefine him. We either need to reject him or soften his edges just a bit. In her book, Shameless, The Sexual Revolution, she calls, she calls out harm that's been done to people as a result of the church, as a result of what the church has taught them about sex and body and gender. And she says, you can draw a straight bleeping line from what people were told in church to the harm in their lives. Now, if she was just talking about all that purity culture stuff from the 90s, I might understand but she's not. She's talking about the idea that God would put any restrictions on consensual human behavior. She makes it clear that in her 10 years of, uh, that she pastored her church, she never once told people what to do with their quote-unquote junk. She also believes that the idea of God having wrath for sin is punitive and unthinkable. And again, if you translate that into the language of moral categories, it means she so values found the foundation of care harm that she has no category for a God who actually executes justice. She has no category for it. And from my experience, this is often what hardening looks like in our culture. Deciding that the God, as he is revealed in Scripture, with all his instructions for human behavior that I don't understand, isn't and can't possibly be morally good. He is an evil, controlling oppressor. He's essentially the bad guy. And in the context of our culture, I can see why someone gets here, because here's the thing. The God of the Bible does in fact call us to do or call me to do things that I sometimes don't want to do. And he calls me not to do things that in my flesh I often want to do. And if I listen to the cultural forces that tell me that nothing should really be off limits unless it hurts someone, then before long, uh, God will necessarily be cast in the role of the villain in my life because he's keeping me from something good. He's keeping me from something that I want or something that I believe that I need, something that can't be wrong because who does it hurt? 
but it will make me happy. Therefore, I can only conclude that he's either wrong or that he's actually against me. It's all I can conclude. He's harming me and harming others and maybe even harming the world as well. So he must be rethought or he must be redesigned or even rejected. And what makes this so tricky or so deceitful is that in coming to these conclusions, we are often using our most functioning moral category. So it feels like we're doing the right thing. It feels like what we are thinking about God and his ways are right because we're judging him on how we see things. And this is the common thread that ties together so many of those deconstruction stories that the boundaries for human behavior laid out by God in scripture seem to have become harmful because they seem to be about things that don't seem to hurt anybody. So God is harming me. He's against me. He's oppressive and restricting and hurtful. And so to varying degrees, God gets labeled as the bad guy. Few actually claim to have woken up one morning and said things like, you know what, I just don't believe Jesus existed anymore. Like that's few people, that's, that's their story. Or you're like, you know what, I just woke up and I don't find the resurrection all that plausible anymore. Honestly, the reason and story after story for their shift in faith, it dealt with morality more than it dealt with anything else. And they concluded that God was the bad guy. Now, I said we'd work outside in, and so here's what I'll tell you. This is not some theoretical thing out there, all right? I'm not talking about some theoretical thing that happens out there in the world. I could rattle off names of people who used to sit exactly where you sit this morning. I'm not going to do that because I'll cry, but I can name names of people who used to be just like you, missionary members, people in life groups, dedicated kid town volunteers, culture setters in meaningful ways who five or 10 years ago were following Jesus who no longer are. And most of them did not wake up and go, you know what, I just can't wrap my mind around the Trinity anymore. That was not the case for most of them. They over time labeled, labeled God as the villain because they looked at his vision of morality and decided that, that, that what the God of scripture called them to or called their friends to was simply unacceptable. His rules and boundaries were keeping people from what they believed they needed for happiness and joy in life. So they must be harmful and he must be rejected. And it's the same story almost every time. Who does it hurt? Who does it hurt if I marry someone who doesn't share my faith? Who does it hurt who I consensually sleep with? Who does it hurt for me to pursue a lifestyle out of God's design? And if you can't come up with a reason that is compelling to you, then you end up deciding that a good God wouldn't do something like that. That a good God wouldn't call you to something like that. And you can see the parallel to Israel in the wilderness. A good God wouldn't bring us out here. A good God wouldn't take this long. A good God wouldn't put us in this position. A good God wouldn't ask us to do that. A good God wouldn't be this way. And I love these people and I love you enough. And that is why I'm willing to run the risk of sounding just a tad bit alarmist when I echo the words of this passage, to be careful, to watch your heart to encourage others so this won't happen to them and so that it won't happen to you. Because this is very difficult for us to see. 
but it's the water that we swim in 24-7 every day of the week. But there is some good news in all of this. Let's look down a few, a few verses later in chapter 4. The author goes on. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news has come to us, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So here's the thing. There's a lot I want to talk about here, but here's the thing. God is not and has never been the bad guy. God is not and has never been the bad guy. You can see from this passage that God's intention was always to take them to, quote, his rest, the promised land, the place they really wanted to be, the ache of their souls, the land flowing with milk and honey, where all is being remade as God has intended it to be, where humans can finally and fully flourish with their creator and with each other. He was trying to take them to the best place for them. He was trying to take them to the land of true freedom, where there was no more fear of the enemy, no more slavery to false gods or false kings, no more dehumanization of themselves and of others, where kids grew up to be kind and joyful human beings because they learned to honor authority, and that authority was good where there was no fear or worry about being taken advantage of because things like lying and slander were just off limits, where they didn't have to lock their doors because no one would covet or steal what they had. And they never had to worry about their husband or wife breaking their vows and breaking their heart by cheating on them. A place of peace and prosperity and fullness, life to the whole. And those are just a few examples, but the point is, is that God is actually the best good guy ever. He wants good for you. He wants you to thrive. He wants your life to flourish. He wants to take you to this place. And it's worth considering that as God watches his people's rebellion in the wilderness, he just may have thought, man, if you could just see what I see, like if you could just see what I see, if you only knew where I was trying to take you, you wouldn't think like this. You wouldn't want to turn from me if you could only see the rest that awaits you. It's so much better than Egypt. If you could only see the freedom that I'm trying to bring you into, the freedom from your own destructive tendencies, from your own hardened heart, from the fear and sin of you and others, if you saw it the way I see it, you'd love it just the way I do. And you'd lay down literally anything to get there. You see, when you don't see where God is taking you and why, it becomes radically easier to harden your heart against him. When you don't see the good that God has for you and where he wants you to go, it becomes easier to harden your heart against him. Uh, A little example of this is kind of like the commandment, observe, uh, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. 
It's built on the sanctity foundation, and it's one of the commands that we really struggle with, right? Like, it's one of the ones where we're just like, I don't even know what that means. Like, if we're talking about taking a day off, then okay, I'm down. But like, what does it even mean to keep it holy? What is that about? And if the only foundation you have is care harm, then you'll probably ignore this command or maybe even despise it for being so restrictive. Like, what if I don't want to keep the Sabbath this week? What if I need to work more right now? What if it doesn't work with my schedule? What if people don't want to do this? What if I don't want to do this? How is it loving or just for you to call me to do this? What kind of God would require something like that? A few years ago, one of our downtown pastors went to Israel and got to experience a Sabbath there where basically the whole nation shuts down to observe this holy day, to observe this time together. And everyone in a spirit of unity is preparing for it. Like they're purchasing their groceries like the day before to make sure they've got all things lined up to be able to take this day off and set it apart, so to speak. And a part of what they did was uh, while they were there is he went and had a long four hour plus something Sabbath meal with a family. And there were neighbors and other friends there. And he said, it was the wildest thing that they sang songs that everyone knew, including the kids, songs that recounted the history of their people and lessons that they had learned. They had what felt to my friend like pre-rehearsed jokes that people knew and were, they were just joining in with. Like they would join into the punchline with laughter and joy every time. And everybody was just celebrating as they rehearsed God's goodness and their family and their nation. And somewhere in the midst of it, he was like, oh, I see it now. This is different than what I think about when I think about a Sabbath or just taking a day off. This is special. This is what it means for a day to be set apart or holy. He was beginning to see a little bit of what God sees. And like how much healing would it bring to us like if we all did that for a year, right? Like if we just made that our pattern having your neighbors over for a long meal full of ritual and tradition as you rehearse God's goodness and express gratitude for everything that he's been giving you. Like, I can't help but think, man, that would be some deep medicine for us. And this is what God wants us to understand. Like, hey, if you could only see what I see, that your frantic busyness and loneliness and the sense that your productivity determines your worth and value could be dealt a death blow by weekly setting aside a day to be holy for meals with God's people, days of no work full of intentional gratitude and worship towards God? Like, would you give up the restriction of your freedom for something that beautiful, for something that life-giving? If you could only see what I see, that every child in our land would never have to give a second thought to whether mommy or daddy were gonna stay together they were going to be in love and be faithful to each other always and reconcile with each other no matter what. The fear or disorientation of adultery and divorce would never cross their little minds. Would you submit to the restraints on your sexual freedom for something that beautiful and glorious? If you could only see what I see, how much peace and security and relief would be ours if in all of our dealings with each other, they were characterized by honesty. If there was no deceit that came from our lips, no slander, no false witness. Business is always being conducted fairly. If you could only see what I see, your heart wouldn't want to harden against me. 
All it takes is the right perspective to see that God is not only benevolent, but he's actually kind of brilliant. And he's certainly after our good. But we have to realize that God has more moral categories than we probably have. For those who hardened their hearts in the rebellion, their entire focus was on the here and the now, on the frustration and the difficulty of the wilderness. They had what you might call a one-world view, so to speak, only being able to see what is directly in front of them. And what God was asking them to do made no sense to them because of it. But God, the entire time, had essentially a two-world view because he knew that the promised land was coming. He knew where he was trying to bring them. And the reality for you and I as followers of Jesus today is that he calls us to take the very same perspective. Once again, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, these all died. And here he's referencing those who trusted God but had not yet seen him fulfill his promise in Jesus. These all died having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If the here and now is your only time horizon, then everything God calls us to, from his commands, uh, from his commands to Jesus' call to deny yourself and follow him, it would make no sense. Like, why would you do those things if this world is all there is? Like, why would you lay down your desires? Why would you obey him and follow his design for life and accept the inherent difficulty of aligning your life with what he says is right, true, and good? In this view, the moral thinking of our culture makes way more sense. Don't do anything that makes your life more difficult because this is all there is. But God says, there is a better country coming for you. There is a better country, a better land he wants to bring you, a better rest that awaits us on the other side of this one, a heavenly city beyond our wildest dreams. And he claims that this life is nothing but a short walk through the wilderness, if you will. And what comes after it is literally either a literal eternity of unimaginable bliss or an eternity of regret and deep grief. And if that's the case, then trusting God's authority makes all the sense in the world in the here and now. Repentance of our sin and self-denial makes all the sense in the world. Accepting whatever hardships come with following Jesus in your life is a no-brainer because anything else would be illogical. And this is what we're called up into. But all that being said, and the, and the point that I'm going to land on is that the point that Hebrews is making in all of this is that the promise to enter that rest, the promise to receive God's promise, it still stands for you. It still stands for you today. Despite the fact that many of us have been tempted to harden our hearts, despite the fact that many of us have been drawn in to sin's deceit, that many of us have thought God wrong and sought to change him and disregard him, that some of us have perhaps even accused him of being hateful and harmful and more for our destruction than for our good. He still offers the better country to you. He still offers it to you. 
While many of us may, to one degree or another, be in the throes of our own deconstructive moment, none of us, and this is the good news, none of us are beyond the reconstruction of Christ. Not one of us. Through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus for all of our rebellions, our once hardened hearts can be softened by the immeasurable love of Jesus to be forgiven and set free, changed to receive the promised land with him and the life to the full that he actually intends for us. And here's the thing. Those that fall away trade a better country for the wilderness. And I just don't want that for you because I think that's a bad trade. I would much rather give you the better country. And so hear me. I, I don't know where all of us are at the moment, but what I do know is that we are all affected by the lens of our culture. We all are. Some of us, I'm sure, are traveling far down the road of deconstruction, attempting to redesign, reinterpret, or simply reject God for who he has revealed himself to be. Some of us may even be here this morning and you're thinking like, I don't even, you're, you're full out convinced, right? Like some of us may be here full out convinced like the Israelites that God is not for your good. And you don't even know why you're here. Like you had a friend who invited you and promised you lunch and you're like, sweet, I'll show up for that. But other than that, I don't know what's going on. You know, we know God's after you. That, we know why you're here. But nonetheless, this is the spot that you're in. Some of us may not be in that exact spot but for you. It's more like, well, God just doesn't understand. He just doesn't understand my life and what I'm going through. If he did, he'd be okay with me doing the things that I'm doing. He's right about most stuff, but with what I'm doing right now, it just feels right to me. Or maybe you're just real bought into that. If it's not visibly hurting anyone, then it's not that big of a deal. And so you're just letting sin live and reign in you. And for some of you, maybe that internal dis dissonance tortures you a bit. But for wherever you're at, the promise of God's rest is there for you. And accepting that might mean that you stick out like a sore thumb, that you become what we would call weird in the right ways in our culture as you accept God's vision for life over and above what the world around you would say is right, true, and good. But his rest and his promise can be yours if you would be willing to confess, repent, and trust him, unlike those in the wilderness who refuse to go in. And this is why he pleads with you today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart because he loves you and he wants you to be there always so that 10 years from now, we will have not hardened our heart and fallen away, but instead, Lord willing, we will delight in what he says, that we would delight in his law and marvel at his wisdom and design for life and be more convinced than ever that he is for our good and that in 10 years, we would be closer to that better country, our eyes and our hearts trained on the joy that lies within it. And if you trust him, if you're willing to do this, if you're willing to repent and trust him, he will help you see what he sees. And he promises that he will take you exactly where he wants you to go.